Hey, everybody. Before we get started, you've heard me talk about it for weeks now. Now is the time to do it. Join the union.us. Come join the pro-democracy hub that is going to make sure the forces of democracy win and are successful this November and that everybody who wants to vote can. Again, join the union.us. And now on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined once again by comedian, Peloton enthusiast, and co-host of LPTV's We're Speaking, Maya May. Maya, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Reed. So, Maya, I always love these Q&A sessions with you because we get a chance to see what the folks who are watching, listening, reading, everything that The Lincoln Project is doing really come to us with thoughtful questions. And I always like the idea that you have what I would call the real world perspective on a lot of this, whereas, of course, I live in a bubble, mostly of my own making. So for everybody out there, you know, we take our questions from social media, emails, town halls. So if you've got something you want to ask, don't be shy. You may hear it on a future Lincoln Project show. So, Maya, let's get going. Our first topic is the GOP and the culture war. Montgomery Jordan asks, it seems like the GOP as a whole has about 90% transformed into caring about culture war issues only. One of the words that I've since started identifying as a Lincoln Project word is the word metastasized, and it has a past the point of no return kind of connotation. Is the GOP past the point of no return when it comes to ever caring about serious issues again? Well, I'll go first here, Maya. I think Montgomery has absolutely nailed it on the head, and we were just thinking about this. You know, as we're recording this, we ended a week where Republican members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, where you're supposed to be an attorney, you're supposed to be a somewhat thoughtful and sober individual, went out of their way to make just ridiculous comparisons to things that Judge Jackson has said over her illustrious and I would say very moderate judicial career. All of it to be like these little pygmy Trumps, right? It all had to do with race. It all had to do with critical race theory. It all had to do with what's a woman. There was no thoughtful legal commentary. It was all about being able to go back to your campaign office and write an email that said, did you see what I just did to Judge Jackson, the Marxist left wing wacko that failed Joe Biden or sleepy Joe Biden's trying to put on the Supreme Court? You take another piece, too, which is where I live. The Republican conservative governor of the state of Utah, Spencer Cox, vetoed an anti-trans bill, and his statement on it was incredibly thoughtful, I thought incredibly empathetic, and yet the Utah legislature brought itself back into special sessions specifically to override his veto. Do you know how many trans kids play sports in Utah, Maya? Probably very few that they can uh, even identify. Four. Four. And one of them plays on a girls' sports team out of a state of three million people. And so Montgomery, are they all culture war all the time? They are, because you know what? This is what happens when you have no moral core, no moral center, no benchmark against which you're going to judge your actions. But I think it's also illustrative too, Maya, of what we have seen from Republican primary voters, which is they may only make up somewhere between 15 and 25% of the party, but they vote in the primaries. And this is the kind of stuff those primary voters like. Yeah, I think they fed the beast, right? And now the beast wants more. And so when you engage in these culture war issues, you're already 
stepping into a territory that it makes it very difficult to get out of. And so I actually love to see it. I'm not going to lie because I think it is such a terrible long-term strategy, but they're so caught in the short term of it that it ends up producing some of the most amazing sound bites because when Gen Z hears some of these clips, some of these sound bites that are going to come out of the SCOTUS hearings, like when they hear these things, that's the kind of stuff that tells people, oh, there actually is a difference between not voting and voting. And so go for it. Culture war all they want. And, you know, I think this is the other part, too, is that it is all so shallow and it's all so self-serving for each of these typically men, although Marsha Blackburn is an exception, which I'm not even sure what she is. She's certainly not human. I think she's an alien attached to a crazy hairdo at this point. I mean, she must be since she's so concerned with trying to define what a woman is. My theory is they just want to define it so they can oppress it. They're like, who do we oppress? Well, but I mean, I would say this, Maya, too, is that there's probably a lot of these folks, and I will speak not on behalf of, but speak to the men of this movement, which is they probably don't have a lot of experience with women. I don't think that women want to spend time with them. And as a woman, could you blame them, I guess? No. No. But I think it also, (laughs) you know, it goes to like Ron DeSantis and the don't say gay bill. You've seen, speaking of Gen Z, you've seen an enormous reaction from young people, both in, I think, middle school, high school and college. And this is the thing about a guy like DeSantis is that everything he does politically and let's say policy wise, is done through the prism of what do Trump base voters want. That's the only thing they care about, because he believes that if Donald Trump doesn't run in 2024, he will have an inside track. Now, he might, but that's neither here nor there, and we're too far away to worry about it. But this is what we're seeing. We see the same thing with Greg Abbott in Texas. And the truth is, is that it goes against everything that the sort of conservative slash libertarian stuff would have applied you know, leave me alone, government out of my house. You know, it's not your business, it's my business. You know, the government stops at the front door, whatever. But it's all horseshit now. It's like, I want to divide and divide and divide. I want to scare white suburbanites. I want to make people who are different from me either feel shame or feel fear or both. I want to depress them from participating or I want to make it harder for them to participate. It is a fundamentally undemocratic viewpoint. And I think that's Montgomery to the end of your question. Is this current iteration of the GOP salvageable? The answer is no, it is not. This version cannot survive if American democracy is to survive. It must be defeated. The Marjorie Three Names, the Ted Cruz's, the Josh Hawley's, all of these assholes must be defeated. If we care truly about American democracy, then they must go because they all think that what Trump did was easy. They think it was easy. They'll find out it's much harder when they all try and reach higher office. But what they don't understand is that it's also, Maya, turning them into fundamentally unserious people. We live in serious, serious times. We are still in the midst of a global pandemic. We are on the precipice, as we speak, of World War III as President Biden, serving as the commander-in-chief, thank God we have right now, is in Europe, as we're recording this, about to give a speech in Poland, a hundred miles from the Russian border. Whereas if Trump were in office, he'd be in Moscow in a hot tub with Vlad and a bunch of girls toasting the new Trump Tower in downtown Kiev as they bulldoze the entire place to make it Putin West or whatever. I mean, in a couple of months, Maya, it will be seven years since Donald Trump came down the escalator. 
seven years, which is hard to believe. Rick Wilson, co-founder of the Lincoln Project, was the first Republican, establishment mainline, successful Republican to say, this is bad. We must have nothing to do with him. The rest of us came along later, a few months, maybe a year. But we have been talking about this for as long as I can remember. This guy has opened the eye of Sauron to be like Robert Plant and use a, a Lord of the Rings <laughs> quote, right? But like what they have unleashed on the country must be defeated, defeated soundly, defeated roundly, defeated forever. If we ever want to get back to a place where this country can be the great American experiment that we know, Maya, will never be perfect. But that doesn't mean you don't strive for perfection every day. Absolutely. And I appreciate the energy around everything that you just said. Sometimes it takes hearing people who have privilege and who are in power to look around and say, wait a second, this is not where we are meant to be as a country. And what's really amazing to me right now is you have companies choosing sides. Disney had to choose a side and they chose, they released a statement saying that they stand up for people being able to live their lives, diversity, that is the strength of this nation. You're never going to change the fact that there are a diverse array of people that live here. And strength comes from listening to and understanding different perspectives because that brings better solutions to complex problems. Like you can't have complex problems and homogenous single solutions. It's like, no. And so I feel like we're at a time in history right now where, you know, this culture war is actually over. Um, they're trying to wage a culture war, but the corporations are starting to choose sides. The smart ones are. Some of the ones that aren't AT&T, for example, not picking the right side at the moment. But I think it says something that Disney, which has a, you know, it's the mouse, it's Mickey. This is where you also see something where DeSantis isn't as smart as he thinks he is. Like Disney is the political player, along with probably Florida Power and Light, the big power company down there in Florida. Like this is the guy you're going to fight with because what could happen? And then I want to get back to Spencer Cox and what he said for a second is that Disney's going to be like, you know what? I'm not giving money to any of these jerks. I'm not giving money to anybody. Now DeSantis has a whole bunch of angry legislators, both Republicans and Democrats going, hey, pal, you know, you going to cough up the money for me? Because they're not. But I want to go back to Spencer Cox for a second. It's something you said about looking at the world through somebody else. And I just want to take a second to read a couple of things he said. And this is in regards to his veto message about the trans kids bill here in Utah. Four kids and only one of them playing girls sports. That's what all of this is about. Four kids who aren't dominating or winning trophies or taking scholarships. Four kids who are just trying to find some friends and feel like they are part of something. Four kids trying to get through each day, he wrote. Rarely has so much fear and anger been directed at so few. I don't understand what they are going through or why they feel the way they do, but I want them to live. And all the research shows that even a little acceptance and connection can reduce suicidality significantly. For that reason, as much as any other, I have taken this action in the hope that we can continue to work together and find a better way. How do you argue with that? It's such a logical and coherent and present statement. And anybody who would argue with that, especially in a country where it's supposed to be life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, 
it's clear that their ultimate motive isn't about creating a safe environment for people to play sports. It's no, it's about gaining control over other people's lives. And that's not small government. So what is it? Right. And so just to continue about the culture war piece here, Montgomery, is the news here was, and I think we're going to see this in a lot of places too, probably in places like Florida and Texas and elsewhere, is that Republicans have controlled Utah for so long that they have gerrymandered it as much as they can. They have made as many hyper-conservative districts as they can, Maya. So what's happening now is someone who was probably a very conservative Mormon Republican member of the assembly or the state Senate, it has now got somebody who's even nuttier to their right. So now, rather than standing on principle, which Utah has done for many, many years for, with people like Governor Mike Levitt, Senator Bob Bennett, Senator Orrin Hatch, even still Senator Mitt Romney, they are now falling into the same trap that everybody else does, which is they must go to the lowest or the ugliest common denominator because they were too good at what they did. And now to your point, they tried to ride the tiger and now the tiger is eating them. And I hope it eats them. All right. Let's talk a little bit about the Supreme Court. Okay. So Vera Brooks asks, I am so excited for Katanji Brown Jackson to be confirmed as the next Supreme Court justice. The history alone gives me so much hope, but I've been watching these hearings and the Republicans questioning makes me question what I'm watching. Could the words of these Republicans be used as ammunition in these 2022 midterm elections? Again, this goes to a lot to Montgomery's question. I think the answer is yes. But again, I think, Maya, from my perspective, what I'm looking at from voters is that, say, 8 to 10 to 12 percent of Republicans that I believe I can get to come across the line for a what they would consider an acceptable Democrat. Let's be clear. This is the kind of stuff they won't like, because to your point about people of privilege, upper income, educated white people in the suburbs want to feel like they are good people and do the right thing. They will see this as ugliness for no reason. They'll see it as ridiculous. They'll be like, are you kidding me with this stuff? And so I, I think it does have an opportunity to be used effectively against a lot of these people, especially those they're up. But again, I think it also goes when you add this to the Putin love that so many of them have shown, the America first slash MAGA stuff, the anti-democratic stuff that so many of them have shown. And frankly, the fact that they don't have anything that they want to talk about as far as how they're going to govern the country. Now, elections are about values, right? And voters make value propositions. Right now, Maya, it doesn't appear to me, as we talked about just a few minutes ago, that the Republicans have any values that I think are shared by most Americans. But we should not underestimate the fact that in midterm elections, remember, most people don't turn out. They tend to be lower turnout elections. And so I think this is a very important thing. The messages can work, but only if the folks we need to get out and participate actually do so. A hundred percent. But I think also what we're seeing during the hearing is that Republicans, I believe, have overplayed the racist hand. I think because they are so immersed in their kind of clown circus Fox News world, they have actually forgotten that the average American would be completely stunned by some of the questions, the way they were asked by the aggressiveness of it. It's almost like, you know, when you go away for the summer in junior high and you come back and like a kid's like a foot taller and everybody's <laughs> like, whoa. And, he, and he, he talked like this when he left. And now he talks like, hey, Maya, how was your summer? <laughs> exactly. And I think that's what's happening with politics. 
most people have checked out for the most part. So every time they check back in, which is every maybe three months or so, they're like, oh, my goodness, what has happened to the Republican Party? And so I think people this past week, from what I've seen online, is people are shocked with everything from the anti-racist baby book that he and asking, do you think babies are racist? I mean, he sounds like a clown. That was Ted Cruz, who is. Yeah, Ted Cruz. I'm not sure that he'll ever lose his asshole of the week crown, but a lot of these guys were competing for it. I mean, what an embarrassment. Like, there's a great comedian, Sebastian Maniscalco, who has a catchphrase that's like, aren't you embarrassed? Right. And that's all I could think of, like in between the, you know, a little bit of rage was also the like, this is embarrassing for these guys. And they have no idea because they're like caricatures of caricatures of caricatures of themselves. And so they're mugging for Fox News and they somehow think that it's going to play well for the average American. And it's like the average American is like, what? Like they're embarrassed. They're talking to their friends going, I'm so sorry. Like, do you know how many white people come and apologize to me now and say, I'm so sorry that it was been like this? I will apologize, too. But let me let me say this. Just I got got two things. One is remember that most of these people that were the worst of the worst, like they are products of the Ivy League, Princeton, Harvard, Yale, what are considered the cream of the crop as far as American educational institutions. I mean, I would like to ask the Ivy League, like, what the hell are y'all putting in the water that's creating these guys? The second thing is my I saw a picture of Josh Hawley who is the, if Ted Cruz is the number one asshole, Holly's 1A, and he was clearly, to your point, mugging. At one point, he's got this, like, glare at Judge Jackson. And again, he's such a weasel, he can't really pull it off, but you can tell what he's trying to do. Like, have you seen that stare before? Well, in that stare, it's so interesting to me because so much of it is so revealing because it's anger and envy wrapped into one. They understand what she had to do to get to where she's at, and they know that they will never be there. And so this level of anger and animosity towards her, and they want to build this outrage, this, you know, the outrage machine has to escalate. It's not something that can stay stagnant. So they have to put it out more and more. And so that look, it's almost like he wants all white men to like embody that anger and so that everybody can feel rage along with him. And it's such a weird way to approach handling a situation that you're not happy with. You know, I saw somebody today, I was in a parking lot and he had a Let's Go Brandon shirt on and he was so unhappy. And I thought about it. I just sat and I looked at him and I was like, wow, it's one thing to voice frustration and to be upset with your president. It's another thing to go that extra mile and get some merch that says, let's go, Brandon, because it's basically encapsulating this mindset of, I'd rather just complain about things and put it on a shirt than actually be mindful enough to try to fix something, to try to find a solution. It's like, no. And to me, it's indicative of this like new mindset that the GOP has, which is just like, complain, 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 complain and not fix anything. And it's embarrassing. I'm like, aren't you embarrassed? Well, and then if someone calls you out on it, you're the victim, right? The truth is, is that they're really the snowflakes. I mean, he wears the T-shirt because it's his only way of feeling like he can tell the world to F off. Now, again, I don't presume to know why he feels that way. But to your point, it has happened and it has happened on a massive scale, right? For every one guy wearing the T-shirt, there's probably five guys in BMWs in, you know, button down shirts who probably feel the same way. True. But I also thought to your point about the look being so revealing. I mean, Josh Hawley is 
you know, he wants to talk about a new American masculinity. Like if there was a new American masculinity, one, what is it? And two, why do you think anybody wants to take cues from him on what it is? Because if the old tropes of masculinity are honor and decency and standing up for those who might have trouble standing up for themselves, then he's not masculine. No, definitely not. I'm far more masculine than Josh Hawley. I'll just go out and say that on a limb. Oh, well, I mean, I would say that uh, River Toad is more masculine <laughs> than he is. So, all right, let's turn to something sobering, and that's the Russian invasion and war on Ukraine. Mary Lester asks, now that we're a month into the Russia-Ukraine war, what is Putin's endgame? Is there an exact goal he is trying to accomplish? to where if that goal was accomplished, he would declare victory and bring the Russian army home with a pat on the back? Well, first, I would say, Mary, go back and listen to our recent episode with both Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who was at the National Security Council when Trump's perfect phone call with Volodymyr Zelensky happened in 2019, and then two weeks ago with Trigvi Olson, who's got a breadth and depth of experience in Eastern Europe. I think at this point, there is so much writing, whether or not it's Ann Applebaum, Fiona Hill, Tim Snyder, Tom Nichols about what happened. I mean, he thought this war was going to be over in three days. He thought he was being told by his advisors, and, and I use that word advisedly, Maya, that they would be welcomed as liberators. That's what they told every one of those kids, including the 8,000 of them that are now dead, that this would be a cakewalk. And it hasn't been, and it's not going to be. And so what you're seeing now is it's sort of like, well, if I can't have her, no one can. So he has decimated cities. They look like Berlin or Tokyo in 1945, right? They are husks. It will take years, if not decades, to repair the damage that has been done. What is his endgame? I think it's open-ended. I don't think he knows anymore other than trying to maintain his control over his country. And if that means that he has to flatten Ukraine to do it, then that's what he'll do. But I think that what we're seeing is like the Russian army did in Syria, like they've done in Chechnya, when they can't win strategically, they're just a blunt instrument, which frankly, as a history nerd, Maya, that's what they've always been. How many bombs can we drop and how many artillery shells can we fire until everything on the other side of the line is dead and then we'll just walk in? I just keep thinking about the art of war and he is clearly pretending to be strong where he is weak. And it is honestly awe-inspiring to see how people around the world have come together to say, no, we actually are strong. There is strength here. And so his threats, which for some reason he perceived himself to be this strong man when he actually was not. And the entire world is now pointing at him going, nope, nope, sorry. His own soldiers are like, nope, nope, sorry. And so what a sobering and sort of grounding thing it must be for him to be experiencing this. And I think at this point, it feels like he's probably in a self-preservation at this point. But to me, it's such a travesty that so many people have to suffer because one man wanted to preserve his legacy and somehow thought that he'd be able to, didn't understand that the world had changed, that even because of the internet, because of course he's trying to cut off the internet in Russia. I think they just shut down Instagram. Much to the chagrin of many of the young oligarchs' daughters and influencers who are like, how oh, will the world hear me now? Yeah. And I think it just goes to show you that when someone is so isolated from what is happening in the rest of the world, I think it can be very easy to forget 
that the common people have evolved and they like to call people out now. And so that doesn't matter whether it's here or whether it's Russia. People are paying attention and they've realized the power of getting the public interest on their side. And it's like the court of public opinion is now for everybody. Everybody can start a hashtag and get online and go from having five followers to a million followers overnight if they know how to position their message well enough. And so I think the strong man that only works when people don't have access to media, when people can't be their own journalists. So in the age of citizen journalism, I think it's really, really difficult for somebody like a Putin to own and control messaging anymore. And that's a huge part of what made him be able to do what he's been able to do in the past. And the predicate of all that is what Lord Acton said, right? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. He surrounds himself only with the people that will tell him that the emperor's got clothes on. There have been stories over the past few weeks that he's replaced a thousand of the courtiers around him. You know, some of his security service generals are being thrown into prison or into house arrest or in detention somewhere. Russian generals are getting picked off left and right because the communication systems are so bad. They have to literally be at the front to be able to tell their forces what to do. And, you know, the army sucks. And so now you see the saber rattling with maybe they'll use tactical nuclear weapons, which forget about it. Like we're off the map. We're already off the map. We'll be in another orbit. And so, you know, I think it's a very long winded answer to say, I don't know what his end game is, Mary, because he thought he knew what it was. And it is not that. And so God bless the people of Ukraine and, and every last one of them and everybody who's trying to do something to help them out. Okay. Johnny Durand said, I recently heard on an episode of the podcast where Michael Lewis said that the COVID-19 pandemic had all the pieces to be an event that would unite the United States, but it didn't because for whatever reason, it didn't instill enough fear. Why do you think the Russian invasion of Ukraine is seemingly uniting the U.S. in the way that COVID should have? Well, my opinion, Maya, is something that Stuart Stevens on our team says a lot, which is leadership matters. If Donald Trump had only been half as awful as he is, maybe we'd only have half as many dead people. If he had chosen to unite the country behind this, we probably wouldn't be on the precipice of a million dead Americans, 75 or 80 million infected Americans, and all of the other societal, economic, and healthcare fallout that we've seen. But he chose to be a divider. And I think that's what you saw when he made the conscious decision, Maya. And remember, it was a conscious decision because in Bob Woodward's book, there's a recording of him talking to Bob Woodward. And if you read the quote, it's as clear as Trump has ever been, who said, Bob, this thing could be a hundred times worse than the flu. This thing could really kill a lot of people. And weeks later, he goes out and says, it's a democratic plot. It's not real. The states shut down, right? The states are like, we're shutting down. We've got to do this. We're going to go into lockdown. He says it'll be over by Easter. It's not over by Easter. Still to this day, Maya, half the people in the country don't believe it's a real thing, right? Don't believe in vaccinations. Is that because they are scientists, they're epidemiologists, they're virologists? No, but because the person that was their political leader said it's not real, don't take it seriously. I think the flip side is, in the context of Ukraine and Russia, was that there was and is a latent desire to be on the, the pro-democracy side, one, but to a reminder that like America is not a pro-Russian country and we never have been and we're likely never to be. That's my opinion, Johnny. You know, and I thought it was a great conversation with Michael and Charity was that in this case, leadership did matter and it does matter. Joe Biden stepped up to be the leader of the free world and the country and the world followed him. 
Donald Trump decided to divide the country and divide the world and look where it got us. Most definitely. But I do recall that brief period of time where it looked like there were certain members of the GOP who were towing the line and thinking that it would be better to support Russia. And then as you know, the weeks moved on. And I think to your point, Reed, it was the strong leadership. I think it was the State of the Union address. And I think those politicians who made the wrong choice started to see that the public were like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're supposed to be against Russia. Yes, that's what we're supposed to do. And so suddenly they found themselves clawing their way back to the other side to say that they support Ukraine and that and suddenly they're very strong on this. And so we saw that shift in in real time. I feel like it happened so fast. We almost forgot that there was like a week, I think, where it was almost like, wait a second, so the party line from the Republicans is going to be that we need to stay out of this, that, you know, Ukraine might have provoked that. Like, what? Well, I think the other part, too, is that in, you know, this goes back to the earlier part of our discussion, too, Maya, is I think another reason why they're double, tripling, quadrupling down on the culture war, bring back up Hunter Biden's laptop, secret bio labs in Ukraine, all this stuff is because they have to distract their people. And, you know, this is the bottom line, as you know, Maya. The only way this kind of movement works is if you keep your supporters, your followers, your listeners in a constant state of unreality. And things like COVID and things like wars break through that reality distortion field. They can't survive it. And so I think that's what you're seeing. They're now throwing everything they can at the wall. They will use Judge Jackson's confirmation as a way to distract their people or to bring their people home. I think the difference is now is that so many of them have the stink of Putin or Trump or Russian money or whatever it is on them that I think it's going to be a lot more difficult. You know, a lot of people that are going to vote this fall will be older people, right? 50, 55 plus. They, like me, remember the Cold War. Now, I was a kid, right? But I remember it. You know, I watched Red Dawn the other night. Doesn't really hold up as a cinematic feature, but, you know, <laughs> I remember at the time why I loved it. The Jennifer Grey one, right? This is the one with Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze? Yes, the Jennifer Grey. Yes. I mean, it was the whole Rat Pack. Yeah, it had them all. Charlie Sheen as a young man. C. Thomas Howell. Leah Thompson. The proto-pack, I guess you could call them. And so I think that that's the other part, too, is if this election is going to be about values, do you value the white Christian nationalist authoritarianism of a Donald Trump and a Vladimir Putin? Or do you value American democracy? Well, that's the thing. And all of a sudden now everybody is like, oh, yeah, yeah, democracy is on the ballot. You know, we're, we're always pulling it out in the last minute, I think, as a country sometimes. It's like we wait, we wait to the last minute, but we make the right decision. It's kind of like, you know, you procrastinate and then you get away with it. And so you keep doing it over and over again, even though you're like, that was really stressful. And so I'm hoping this time around we'll remember this feeling and we'll go, hey, we're going to start caring about democracy before it becomes a problem. Right. All right. Let's do one last question and then we'll let everybody get out of here. All right. John Almeida asks, when Trump met Putin at the beginning of his presidency, he reportedly had the notes from that meeting destroyed. If this is true, can we found out what the two men spoke about from Trump's interpreter? I'd really like to know what was discussed at that private meeting. I would venture to say that having my old time at the White House, the interpreters occupy Maya such a unique space. You know, they literally sit at the ear of the leader, you know, that they're working for. They hear it all right. They take notes because remember, it's interpretation. It's not translation. Translation is written. Interpretation is 
not only what are the words they say, but what were the intent of those words? And so I would venture to say whoever that interpreter was, probably State Department employee, probably has the highest clearances in the world. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's some State Department lawyer that says, well, we can't have this person talk because if they talk, then everybody else could be made to talk and blah, 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 blah. So, John, do I think that we'll ever find out? Probably not. But I think just based on Trump's behavior prior to that meeting and his behavior since that meeting, I think we have a pretty good idea what it said, which was Vladimir Putin said to Trump, sit boy, good boy. You know, it's funny because I feel like we always say to ourselves, we want to be in the room, you know, in the room where it happened, sure. that fly on the wall. And to your point, seeing the behavior, we don't actually need to know what was said, because this is one of those situations where it's like your actions are speaking so loud, I can't hear what you're saying. We don't need to know at all what happened during those conversations, because his actions throughout his presidency have been incredibly clear speaking of Trump here, have been incredibly clear about whose side he's on. And it's not the side of America's people. And what's funny is now Putin has no use for him. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the coming months. Well, that's for sure. And, and one thing we know, Maya, is that if we hope to live in quiet times, those dreams are over. As always, Maya, I want to thank you for joining me today. Where can everybody find you on social media? And what is your tour looking like right now? So I am Maya on stage on all platforms, Peloton included. I say that now importantly because it makes me actually get on the bike because I think people can see how often I ride if they, <laughs> if they follow me. So it makes right. me ride more. And then I am actually not touring again until the fall. I just was in Florida. That was my last show for the season. And now I am focused on democracy, saving democracy. Well, amen. And thank God we've got you. As always, folks, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. You can also find me on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP if you're so inclined. I want to thank Maya again for joining me. Everybody be safe, healthy, and happy, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.